Well, good morning. So further to uh, what we've been discussing, the mind and awareness and how it relates to uh, reducing our suffering and liberation and, and even we discussed how it can, uh, can allow us to achieve far more than we think we're capable of. So what I thought we'd do is take a little meandering uh, stroll through the chapter Introduction to Awareness from the Bartle Thaddeul. Uh, and in actuality, what it is, is the introduction to awareness, natural liberation through naked perception. It's a, an extract from a larger treatise, and the author says, Thus shall I introduce to you the nature of intrinsic awareness. And so the importance of the introduction to awareness, you say... Though the single nature of mind, which completely pervades both cyclic existence and nirvana, has been naturally present from the beginning, you have not recognized it. Even though its radiance and awareness have never been interrupted, you have not yet encountered its true face. Even though it arises unimpededly in every facet of existence, you have not as yet recognized the single nature of mind. In order that this single nature might be recognized by you, the conquerors of the three times have caught an inconceivably, taught an inconceivably vast number of practices, including the 84,000 aspects. And he goes on, and uh, let me just read what he's talking about here, because I find this um, actually the most imp- one of the most important aspects. This is the third note uh, in this chapter. where he says the point is that all of the inestimable 84,000 aspects of the sacred teachings, the nine vehicles, the three or four patakas, and so forth, depend upon primarily understanding intrinsic awareness, or pure awareness, as we learned in the Yoga Sutra of Pantanjali. Now this uh, next line is a quote from the Lankavitara Sutra, uh, chapter 2, verse 202. As long as sentient beings manifest, there will be no end to the vehicles. When the mind becomes transformed, there is neither vehicle nor mover. Important, uh, because I tend to quote it a little bit different when I says there is no end to uh, entry to the Dharma of Nirvana. And that's Churyi, a uh, contemporary of, of, uh, of these other gentlemen. And he said the exact same thing. And what are we referring to here? Once again, we're talking about intrinsic awareness. We're talking about the mind, right? So, once again, as he says, as long as sentient beings manifest, there will be no end to the vehicles, the uh, upaya, the efficient means, uh, uh, skills. When the mind becomes transformed, there is neither vehicle nor mover. So notice it says transformed, it doesn't say eliminated, right? Uh, So let's just go on. So it says the term mind, well this is in the actual introduction to awareness. The term mind is commonplace and widely used, that there are those who do not understand its meaning, those who falsely understand it, those who partially understand it, right? And those who have not quite understood its genuine reality. So he goes on and he talks about, uh, let's see here. 
those who don't recognize his true nature uh, consequently experience suffering and they uh, roam through the six classes of sentience, which is rebirth. They continue to be born and reborn. Uh, born, die, and reborn. And then he goes on and says, even the pious attendants and hermit Buddhas claim that they understand this single nature of mind as partial absence of self. Right? I love that. The note says, partial absence of self is that aspect of selflessness comprehended by pious attendants and hermit Buddhas. Right? So, selflessness. So they understand selflessness, but they don't understand it exactly as it is. Right? So he goes on and talks about these different um, practitioners, Madhyamaka, Yogacara, Mahayoga, Anayoga, Atiyoga, um, Kriya Tantra, Yoga Tantra, all talking about how they seem to miss the complete point. Right? So he, uh, therefore one should abandon all constructed teachings and all unnatural states free from activity. And by virtue of this, this introduction to awareness, natural liberation through naked perception, which is presented here, one should realize all things in the context of this great natural liberation. And so synonyms for the mind. As for this apparent and distinct phenomenon, which is called mind, in terms of existence, it has no inherent existence whatsoever. We've discussed this. You can't tell me what exactly it is the mind. We can, we can point to your preferences as a person, which uh, you use as individuation. We can uh, look at our physical bodies. We can look at um, the actual uh, brain. We can uh, discuss electronic impulses, none of which we can truly um, put our fingers on as the physical mind. In terms, in terms of origination, it is a source of the diverse joys and sorrows of cyclic existence and nirvana. In terms of philosophical opinion, it is the subject. It is subject to opinions in accordance with the eleven vehicles. The eleven vehicles are what I mentioned: the uh, eye conscious, nose consciousness, volition, all these different uh, ways that we uh, use the mind to not perceive reality as it is. Uh, so it says, uh, in terms of designations, it's got an inconceivable number of names. Uh, some call it the nature of mind, nature of mind itself. Some externalists give it the name self. Pious attendants call it selflessness of the individual. Chittamatrans call it mind. Some call it perfection of discriminative awareness. Uh, and he goes on, the great seal, the expansive reality, the ground of all. And some call it ordinary, unfabricated consciousness. This is important, because once again, we're not, we're not talking of negation or uh, that this doesn't exist. We're talking about, we're talking about how the mind itself uh, is not what we see it, is not how we perceive it, and worse yet, we are actually guilty of misappropriating its intended use. Its intended use is to allow us to realize that awareness is the true state of being, whereas mind or ego or self, again, depending on how you define it, uh, actually in the end usually uh, continues to reinforce this um, uh, fixation we have with uh, life, with birth and death and rebirth. I mean, arguably we complain about the sorrow that comes and yet we cling to it. Okay, so I go on. He says the three considerations. The following is the introduction to the means of experiencing 
the single nature of mind. Through the application of three considerations. First, recognize that past thoughts are traceless, clear, and empty. Second, recognize that the future thoughts are unproduced and fresh. And third, recognize that the present moment abides naturally and unconstructed. So, let me just dissect this again. First, we recognize that past thoughts are traceless, clear, and empty. So, what do they mean by this? Again, it's an attempt to make it as clear as possible in English. But again, this is a translation from Sanskrit, maybe Pali, into Tibetan, and then to Chinese, and then maybe to English, or in this case, from Tibetan directly to English. So we use the words, past thoughts are traceless. Traceless in the sense like um, dependent origination, of cause and effect. You can trace anything back to its root, and it just keeps breaking down into smaller and smaller parts, right? Atoms, quarks, neutrons, black matter, dark matter. Pardon me. So, thoughts are traceless, right? Uh, the past is the past. What happened in the past no longer exists. So, if you're still stuck in the past, attaching to a memory, it's absolutely traceless. It's you that is giving birth to this memory. Clear, again, as I said, there is no truth to it. It's not happening, yet, as I discussed in the podcast yesterday, uh, science has proven that visualization can fool the mind. So this is why um, being positive and not attaching to uh, these previous um, actions, thoughts, feelings, volitions, uh, why it is so healing and damaging at the same time when we do attach to it. And lastly, empty. As I said, empty of any intrinsic value. Why would you spend time thinking about the past? Of course, we should be using them as lessons, right? But being attached to the past is different. So second, future thoughts are unproduced and fresh. Well, future thoughts are unproduced because future has not yet been born. You create it in your present moment, right? Fresh meaning when something does occur, it's not based on anything previous. This is a big philosophy with Buddhism, and we've read it before, the belief that, and we'll talk about it later in this chapter, the belief that um, you don't have to uh, replace your previous negative karma. It's always being reborn. So it's not a matter of um, eliminating negative karma. It's a matter of leaving the attachments in the past. Because it's not your past actions that continue to cause you suffering karma. It's actually your regret. Because karma, once again, is action it's an internal force acting upon you. How? You felt you did something bad in the past, you continue to carry that forward. The only solution, as it says in the Dhammapada, is how best to cover a bad action or an evil action than with a good one. And that's exactly what the Chittamatrans, the Tantric Yogans, the Buddhists, the... the, 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 the honestly, a lot of these uh, sects believe that it's not a matter of, of making up for. It's a matter of leaving that behind, giving birth to this new mind that does not produce these associations, these aversions and attachments, right? So future thoughts are unproduced and fresh. 
And finally, recognize that the present moment abides naturally and is unconstructed. So what is that telling you? It's explaining what it had actually talked about earlier when it said um, it's difficult for us to understand the difference between awareness and consciousness. And this is what it's trying to remind us. Remember that the moment abides naturally, completely untouched, as it should be. That's this intrinsic awareness or pure awareness, right? This parusha, this uh, isvara, this samadhi, jhana, jnana, um, satori, samadhi, um, this, this uh, moment of clarity, right? It abides naturally and it's unconstructed. Where we usually fail, many of us can experience moments of clarity, clear light, um, wisdom, uh, a moment of uh, enlightenment, of understanding, of awareness. Uh, but we tend to then, you know, add things to it. Or, as is commonly um, referenced, that we get all ego about it. And, hey, look at me! So, and he goes on. When ordinary momentary consciousness is examined nakedly and directly by oneself, upon examination, it is at a radiant awareness which is free from the presence of an observer, manifestly stark and clear, completely empty and uncreated in all respects, lucid, without duality of radiance and emptiness, not permanent, for it is lacking inherent existence in all respects, not a mere nothingness, for it is, a, it is radiant and clear, not a single entity, for it is clearly perceptible as a multiplicity, yet not knowing inherently, Sorry, not existing inherently as a multiplicity, for it is indivisible and of a single savor. This intrinsic awareness, which is not extraneously derived, is itself the genuine introduction to the abiding nature of all things. For in this intrinsic awareness, the three Buddha bodies are inseparable and fully present as one. Its emptiness and other lack of inherent existence is the Buddha body of reality. The natural resonance and radiance, radiance of this emptiness is the Buddha body of perfect resource. And its unimpeded arising in any form whatsoever is the Buddha body of emanation. These three, fully present as one, are the very essence of awareness itself. So, of course, they made it a little bit convoluted in the end when they talked about the Buddha bodies. Buddha bodies, they're not dissimilar from when they talk about it in the yoga. Um, it's intention, and it's these different levels of understanding. Um, it is possible for you to g gain a complete understanding in an instant, but they make sure uh, for most people to understand that it's a process. And here we're talking about the natural resonance and radiance of this emptiness is the Buddha body of perfect resource. So this is kind of like if you think um, we talk about seeking refuge and we talk about um, uh, seeking refuge in the Dhammam, uh, which is the Dharma, the teachings, the truths. And we talk about uh, seeking refuge in the Buddha, not in the individual, but remembering that we all have within us this ability, this innate ability to be the awakened one. Right? Again, Buddha simply translates as the awakened one. Simply, he put this practice uh, into play and succeeded at making it his default. 
Um, and that's why we call him the Awakened One. And lastly, we talk about the Sangha, uh, which is the community. Uh, I like to consider the community of humans. Again, the oneness, uh, the, sorry, the shunyata emptiness doctrine, I like to consider it as a oneness, right? Because when he goes on and says, right, the resource being your Dhamma, reality being the truth, and the unimpeded arising of any form whatsoever is the Buddha body of emanation. And that's the truth of um, dependent origination, right? And so that's what we're talking about. Again, they talk a lot about the nature of mind is that we don't see reality for what it really is, but that doesn't mean these other individuals don't exist. This morning, there were people talking about uh, this uh, prideful eagle um, entity talking about how we're some sort of a simulation in a matrix. We are, but we are the source of the simulation, and we're also the source of the liberation. There's not an external actor uh, in this. Uh, it's all us, right? So, these three, fully present as one, fully present as one, are the very essence of awareness itself. And what does he mean by that? When you understand that you are your natural liberation. You are the awakened one. You have within you that ability. When you realize that the resource is there, it's as simple as, as the Chinese say, you walk the, the central path or the golden mean. Not insufficiency, not excess. Just like the Buddha said. He wandered India for years thinking that aestheticism was the answer. It was not. He had rejected um, arguably some of the greatest wealth ever known to mankind. Um, he rejected that originally in the face of, not just uh, in, the, uh, in the face of suffering, but uh, as a wish to find a, uh, an end to that suffering for all of mankind. Now keep in mind, he didn't come up with this great um, prescription all on his own. Uh, the Vedic uh, before him, uh, the Upishanic knowledge uh, certainly had come a long way. Uh, during my studies, decades long now, uh, I've come to realize the biggest difference was um, the development of the two-sided coin of meditation or of awareness, right? Of sati or mindfulness. Like I said in the previous podcast that the Buddha himself declared that this awareness, this mindfulness, needs to be carried into daily life. Why? Because it's this, this prescription for reduction in our, in our overall dissatisfaction in this life. So, of course, it needs to be carried into our daily life. And what did he talk about? He talked about that you can't just look at the nature of being and just find the answers you're looking for. Uh, you can't just sit there and be calm and they'll just all come to you. It's interesting that it's a two-sided coin, that Shamatha and Vipassana, uh, one predated the Buddhist teachings, another arguably um, was given uh, birth by the teachings of Gautama. So staying calm and uh, looking into the nature of all things. So once again when we're looking at the inherent existence of the Buddha body is reality. Once again, awareness, right, is within us and it is the truth. The perfect resource is 
being able to not only use the mind and also knowing that the mind is what's giving us this false information. And finally, the unimpeded arising of all things is just the, the emanation of the Buddha body. It's arguably everything is a tool. Kind of like the Dalai Lama says, your enemy is your greatest teacher. All phenomena, all dharma, all everything is designed to teach us. Uh, it's designed to awaken this intrinsic awareness that uh, is innate within all of us. Right? But anyway, so I'm going to go on. And he talks about the consequences of the introduction to awareness. Okay, so we'll carry on to the consequences of the introduction to awareness. Why do I mention this? Um, why is this uh, piece important? Because we're talking about the nature of mind, we're talking about the nature of consciousness, and we're talking about um, this intrinsic um, nature that we have uh, to, uh, to relieve ourselves of the same. So it says the consequences of the introduction to awareness. When the introduction is powerfully applied in accordance with the above methods of entering into this reality, one's own immediate consciousness is this very reality. Abiding, abiding in this reality, which is uncontrived and naturally re radiant, how can one say that one does not understand the nature of mind? Abiding in this reality, wherein there is nothing on which to meditate, how can one say that by having entered into meditation one was not successful? And he goes on and says, abiding in this reality, which is one's actual awareness itself. Right? How can one say that one could not find one's own mind? The interrupted union of radiance and awareness. Right? And he goes on, says, in this immediate consciousness itself, how can one say that one does not know this reality? Right? So it's an, entire, um, it's an entire piece that was just to uh, highlight the fact that our consciousness is at once, as I've said before, uh, both the tool and the barrier to this uh, liberation. The liberation in this case is this intrinsic awareness. It goes on again, and it's observations related to examining the nature of mind. It says, be certain that the nature of mind is empty and without foundation. One's own mind is insubstantial like an empty sky. Look at your mind to see whether it is like that or not, divorced from views which constructedly determine the nature of emptiness. Right? And he goes on. Be certain that this awareness, which is pristine cognition, is under, uninterrupted. Right? Like the coursing central torrent of a river which flows unceasingly. Love how it says that, right? Remember, it's the central part of the river. Right? You need to wade in to the deep part to truly uh, experience the current. Be certain that conceptual thoughts and fleeting memories are not strictly identifiable, but insubstantial in their motion, like the breezes of the atmosphere. Look at your own mind to see whether it is like that or not. Right? Like the clouds of the atmosphere naturally originating and naturally dissolving. There are no phenomena extraneous to those that originate from the mind. How could there be anything on which to meditate apart from the mind? 
So there are no modes of conduct to be undertaken extraneous to the mind. There are no phenomena extraneous to those that originate from the mind. So there are no commitments to be kept extraneous to the mind. There are no phenomena extraneous to those that originate from the mind. So the results to be attained are not extraneous. There's no phenomena extraneous to that in the mind. So one should observe one's own mind, looking into its nature again and again. So, one's own mind, completely free from conceptual projections, will become luminously clear. This intrinsic awareness, or union of inner radiance and emptiness, is the Buddha body of reality, as I said. It's that innate truth that we all have this ability to be awake. It appearing like the illuminating effect of a sunrise on a clear cloudless sky. It's common in Buddhism that they use light as a metaphor for wisdom, understanding, uh, darkness for ignorance. It's clearly knowable, despite its lack of shape or form. There's a great distinction between those who understand and those who misunderstand this point. This is exactly what I was talking about yesterday. This is not about a no-self. This is about not just the self, or it's not all about the self. What we have to remember, we're not learning to be non-beings, non-entities. We're learning, learning to be at one with all entities, understanding that there is nothing that separates us from the other beings. This naturally originating inner radiance, uncreated from the very beginning, is the parentless child of awareness. It is the naturally originating pristine cognition, uncreated by anyone. It has never been born and will never die. Though manifestly radiant, it lacks a perceiver. Though it's roamed throughout cyclic existence, it does not degenerate. Though it's seen Buddhahood itself, it does not improve. Though it's present in everyone, it remains unrecognized. Still, one hopes for some attainment other than this. Though it is present within oneself, one continues to seek it elsewhere. So, next is intrinsic awareness as view, meditation, conduct, and result. This immediate awareness, insubstantial and radiant, is itself the highest of all views. Uncontrived activity based on awareness, simply expressed in worldly terms, is itself the highest of all types of conduct. This unsought attainment of awareness spontaneously presents from the beginning. First, the great medium of airless view. In this radiant, immediate awareness, since it is radiance without air, it is called medium. The great medium of airless meditation, since it's radiant without air, it's called a medium. The great medium of air, effort, errorless conduct, my apologies, is this radiant, immediate awareness. Since it is radiant without air, it is called a medium. The great medium of errorless result is this radiant, immediate awareness. Since it is radiant and without error, it is called medium. Right? The reason why I misspoke with the effortless, because that's exactly what it's trying to talk about here, right? Since radiant without error, without error, it's also effortless, right? That's your, your immediate awareness, right? It should be effortless, because as soon as you put effort into it, you're adding volition, and you're jading your uh, perception 
of that natural awareness. Okay? So he goes on and talks about, right, do not meditate at all, since there is nothing upon which to meditate. I like to mention that a lot and tell people not to meditate, because arguably uh, it's not sitting somewhere. Instead, revelation will come through undistracted mindfulness. Since there is nothing by which you can be distracted, nakedly observe all that arises in this modality, which is without meditation and without distraction. When this experience arises, intrinsically aware, naturally cognizant, naturally radiant and clear, it is called the mind of enlightenment. Since within the mind of enlightenment there is nothing upon which to meditate, this modality transcends all objects of knowledge. Since within this mind of enlightenment there are no distractions, it is the radiance of the essence itself. And he goes on and talks about the Buddha body of reality and uh, the resource. Right? And he talks about this is when Vajrasattva is actually achieved at this very moment. And I don't like when they use those terms. Simply Vajrasattva is uh, is a compound Sanskrit word. Vajra means diamond, um, hard, but also ultimate. And sattva means being, but in this case, likely referring to um, the yogic trans, uh, translation of sattva, which actually means the ultimate being, right? The perfect being. So this is essentially saying Vajrasattva, the ultimate perfect being. Kind of like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, right? Now follows the instruction which brings one to the point where the six extreme perspectives are exhausted, right? And he goes on, he talks about intrinsic awareness of the single nature of mind, and he talks about the pristine cognition, uh, being able, with lucid awareness, itself is the great perfection. And again, they love to go on and talk about how wonderful, but we can just, we can just skip it because we've already talked about it, that the ultimate goal is this intrinsic awareness, right? And it goes on to synonyms for awareness. This awareness free from the eight extremes, such as externalism and nihilism and so forth, is called the middle way, which does not fall into any extremes. It's called awareness because mindfulness is uninterrupted. Let me just go back to that and say it is called the middle way, which does not fall into any extremes. Remember I said that earlier about asceticism and uh, I guess we could say hedonism in a sense. It is called awareness because mindfulness is uninterrupted. It is given the name nucleus of the Tathagata. That means it is the heart of our Buddha nature. Again, I'm not a big fan when they use the big words and I'm learning to not use them myself. Nucleus is the heart of a cell. So if we're talking about the heart of this prescription for liberation, of course that will be our own Buddha nature. What is our own Buddha? It's simply our ability to be aware of our own jaded perception of reality, thus achieve a more satisfactory existence, right? And he goes on, because emptiness is naturally endowed with the nucleus of awareness. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Awareness is this Buddha nature. Buddha just means the awakened one. Awakened to what? To his awareness, right? If one understands this truth, one reaches perfection in all respects. For the, which reason this awareness is also called the perfection of discriminated, discriminative awareness. Now, this is very Tibetan, and I love it because they under, seem to understand this a little bit better. So, again, it's not, 
the discriminated uh, ultimate awareness that tends to sometimes be translated. In this case, it's the perfection of discriminative awareness. So again, like I, I said earlier, it is not uncommon for them to confuse consciousness with awareness. So again, that's why I love the Mahasatipatthana Sutra. What is it? It's the great uh, mindfulness residing sutra. Right? Because mindfulness, as it said, awareness. Because mindfulness is uninterrupted. So what is satipatthana? Once again, another compound Sanskrit word that means to reside in mindfulness. To abide in mindfulness. Right? Furthermore, it's called the great seal because it transcends the intellect and is a temporarily free from extremes. So what is he talking about there? So... We're using the mind, but not the intellect. Like I said, it's not no self. It's not self. So we need to see past the self, not destroy the self, to achieve this perfected, discriminated awareness. We need to be aware to what is truly the reality. Right? And he goes on, talks about it being the ground of all. Because this awareness is the ground of all joys and sorrows associated with with cyclic existence and nirvana, right? So this is why we talk about things such as impermanence. Remember, nothing is permanent. Not even impermanence, right? Because we all have this intrinsic Buddha nature. That could be argued as intrinsic, therefore permanent. No, because it's our awareness that is cyclical, right? Um, and even Buddhas can slip. Even the Dakinis, uh, some of the gods in some of the pantheon, are actually gods because they've become so arrogant that they've achieved a certain level of enlightenment or awareness, but not enough to realize that they are once again the source of their own suffering. So, in Buddhism, uh, that we mentioned the six different uh, realms of existence. You know, there's the hell realm, the animal realm, the human realm. Then we go into the gods and the asunas. That's not a realm you want to go to, right? They have the ability to uh, achieve uh, liberation from their own suffering. Not unlike animals, um, but it's their arrogance, which arguably is worse uh, than just sheer... Um, natural ignorance. Willful ignorance, much worse um, than just, you know, not knowing, right? So he goes on. Uh, he goes, though one were to scan the entire external universe searching for the nature of mind, one would not find it. Buddhahood cannot be attained other than through the mind. That's why I now say, commonly, that mind is the greatest tool to liberation. Upaya, uh, skillful means. Uh, commonly missed because uh, it is commonly taught uh, as uh, an insufficient uh, prescription because of ego or honestly it is very difficult for a lot of people to understand these simple uh, ideas right it's not no self it's not no desire because as many people will point out very simply without any desire nothing gets done and in fact it's the opposite because karma kriya yoga is about action. As I said earlier, this mindfulness is to be carried into our daily life 
for liberation and as an example. So he goes on and he talks about this apparent dichotomy between the cyclic existence and nirvana is due to this dichotomy between ignorance and awareness. So he says, since there, there exists no intrinsic dichotomy in the mental continuum, this uncontrived nature of mind is liberated just by being left in its natural state. Right? Yet, you remain unaware that bewilderment originates in your mind. You never understand the meaning of actual reality. So first, observe the source from which these appearances initially originated. Second, observe the place in which they abide in the interim. And third, observe the place to which they will finally go. Then one will find that just as a pond-dwelling crow does not stray far from the pond, even though it flies away, similarly, although appearances arise from the mind, they arise from the mind and subside into the mind of their own accord. As I've said earlier, each uh, chitta or mind, your eye consciousness, your ear consciousness, or any thought, emotion, or volition is born and dies away in that very moment. The nature of mind, which is all-knowing, aware of everything empty and radiant, is established to be manifestly radiant and self-originating, a pristine condition. Present from the beginning, just like the sky. And this nature is aware and radiant. Therefore, recognize this nature. Be like the sky. However, this example of sky, though used to illustrate actual reality, is merely a symbol, partial, provisional, for the nature of mind is aware, empty, radiant in all respects, while the sky is without awareness, is empty, inanimate, and void. Therefore, the true understanding of the nature of mind is not illustrated by the metaphor of the sky. To achieve this understanding, let the mind remain in its own state without distraction. So like I said, the mind is the tool, but we are actually also the reason why um, we can't use that tool. So that was, uh, that was uh, another chapter. I'm going to go on. I'm going to take a break here. And we'll go on to the nature of appearances next. All right, so I'm going to continue on to the nature of appearance. And uh, the nature of appearances is a chapter that just goes on and on uh, talking about... Um, well, okay, so... All things are the discernible manifestations of the mind. It says, uh, for example, the six classes of living beings discern phenomenal appearances in different ways. Externalistic extremists uh, who are remote from the Buddhist perspective perceive appearances in terms of a dichotomy of externalism and nihilism. Followers of the nine sequences of the vehicle perceive appearances in terms of the respective views and so forth. So he goes on and says, right, everyone has a different perspective. But he says, all things that appear are manifestations of mind. The surrounding environment which appears to be inanimate, that too is mind. And that's interesting because it is true. Because if we look at modern science, there's a lot of nature uh, that happens at such a slow or fast pace that we ourselves don't even perceive it, right? Changes of seasons, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, landscape changes. Um, so sentient life forms, which appear as the six classes of living beings, they too are mind. The joys of both the gods and humans, of the higher existences, which appear, they too are mind. 
the sorrow of the three lower existence which appear, they too are mine. These are the different realms I mentioned before, the hell realms and uh, the realms of the gods. The five po poisons presented, uh, representing the dissident mental states of ignorance which appear, they too are mine. The awareness that is self-originating, pristine cognition which appears, it too is mine. The beneficial thoughts conducive to attainment of nirvana, which appear, they too are mine. So the obstacles of malevolent forces and spirits, which appear, they are mine. The deities and spiritual accomplishments, which manifest exquisitely, they too are mine. And I would even argue that the deities and spiritual accomplishments, which hinder the spiritual accomplishment, they too are mine. The color the colors, characteristics of objects which appear, they too are mine. The state, without characteristics and without conceptual elaboration, which appears, they too are mine. That's interesting, right? Because that's where the koan comes in, right? If you try to understand the nature of mind or you try to understand some sort of a thought experiment, something without an answer, that uh, itself is mind. The non-duality of a single, of the single, and the multiple, which appears... It too is mind. Remember when we talked about the Shunyata doctrine being empty, empty of dependent origination or intrinsic nature. That itself means it is at one with everything else. The unprovable, unprovability of existence and non-existence, uh, which appears and is to mind. So there are no appearances at all, apart from those that originate in the mind. Unimpeded nature of mind assumes all manner of appearances, yet these appearances arise and they are without duality. They, are nat they naturally subside into the modality of the mind, like waves in the waters of an ocean. Whatever names are given to these unceasingly arising objects of designation, in actuality there is but one single nature of mind. And that single nature is without foundation and without root. Therefore, it is not perceptible at all in any direction whatsoever. It's not perceptible as a substance, for it lacks inherent existence. It's not perceptible as emptiness, for it is the resonance of awareness and radiance. It is not perceptible as diversity, for it is the indivisibility of radiance and emptiness. This present intrinsic awareness is manifestly radiant and clear. And even though there exists no known means by which it can be fabricated, and even though this awareness is without inherent existence, it can be directly experienced. Thus, if it is exper experientially cultivated, all beings will be liberated. So I like that because, again, it's taught... Oh, oh. that's where we got to stop it for... Okay, so, pardon the, uh, the break... Uh, we're back at it. We're actually in the natural liberation through naked perception, uh, part of what's commonly uh, become known as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, a collection of uh, writing, writings, treatises about awareness uh, and the bardos, uh, the between states of three states in life, three states in the between of death and rebirth. <clears throat> Uh, well, the death and rebirth, you have your initial uh, between state, post-death, dying state. Um, then you have your between, where you choose whether to uh, 
uh, be reborn as the myth goes. And the third state is the state of rebirth. Now in life, there's your three states of awakened, awake. My apologies not to confuse these terms. Um, the, the living normal state, the sleep state, um, and then the meditative state, uh, trance state. Uh, now science has different brain waves uh, to, note, to denote these different states. And then we have some writing talking about some possible between states, neither of which um, matter today. Uh, what I'm reading is actually the conclusion. And, uh, well, to the introduction to awareness, I'm reading the conclusion and how it, uh, again, speaks to uh, both the mind being, both the, the barrier and the, uh, the antidote to uh, our dissatisfaction with our existence. <clears throat> so, conclusion. All those of all differing potential regardless of their acumen or dullness, may realize this intrinsic awareness. However, for example, even though sesame is a source of oil and milk of butter, but there will be no extract if these are unpressed or unchurned. Similarly, even though all beings actually possess the seed of Buddhahood, sentient beings will not attain Buddhahood without experiential cultivation. So what he's saying there is what we talked about before, that we all have that intrinsic Buddha nature, the Tathagata Garbha, that store of that intrinsic awakened nature, knowing that that's just our natural state. <clears throat> um, and when he talks about experiential cultivation, this is both um, the meditation and the awareness. Um, like I said earlier, Kriya Yoga is action that's bringing, uh, like, putting an action verb to mindfulness and carrying it throughout uh, your daily life and your entire existence, right? So it goes on to say, nevertheless, even a cowherd will attain liberation if he or she engages in experiential cultivation. For even though one may not know how to elucidate this state intellectually, one will, through experiential cultivation become manifestly established in it. <clears throat> One whose mouth has actually tasted molasses does not need others to explain its taste. But even learned scholars who have not realized this single nature of mind will remain the victims of bewilderment. For however learned and knowledgeable in explaining the nine vehicles they may be, they will be like those who spread fabulous tales of remote places they have never seen. And as far as the attainment of Buddhahood is concerned, they will not approach it even for an instant. If this nature of intrinsic awareness is understood, virtuous and negative acts will be liberated right where they are. But if this single nature is not understood, one will amass nothing but future lives within cyclic existence, with its higher and lower realms, regardless of whether one has engaged in virtuous or non-virtuous actions. <clears throat> yes, if one's own mind is simply understood to be the pristine cognition, utterly empty of inherent existence, 
the consequences of virtuous and negative actions will never come to fruition. For just as a spring cannot materialize in empty space, within the realization of emptiness, virtuous and negative actions do not objectively exist. So there's twice they've said the exact same thing. It's talking about making these judgments. It, it's talking about just as the uh, Yoga Sutras of Pantanjali spoke, that it is our clinging to attachment and aversion that causes us these preferences and these dislikes, right? For just as spring, a spring cannot materialize in empty space within the realization of emptiness. Virtuous and negative actions do not objectively exist. So it is that for the purpose of nakedly perceiving the manifestly present intrinsic awareness, this natural liberation through naked perception is most profound. Thus, by following this instruction, one should familiarize oneself with this intrinsic awareness. And then it goes on and just says, profoundly sealed. Uh, it's been composed for the sake of future generations, uh, the sentient beings of a degenerate age. It integrates in a purposeful, concise abridgment all of the preferred tantras, transmissions, and esoteric instructions. Though may have dis disseminated it, at the present time it will be concealed as a precious treasure for it be encountered for those of the future who have a positive inheritance of past actions. So the treatise concerning the direct introduction to awareness, entitled The Natural Liberation Through Naked Perception, was composed by Padma Kara, the precess preceptor of Odiana. May its influence not be ended until cyclic existence has been emptied. Okay, so they didn't really explain that all that well. So it goes back to the prophecy of Karma Lingpa. Uh, Padma Samhava, the lotus born, who uh, is credited with having brought Buddhism into Tibet, actually gave a prophecy uh, that there was uh, teachings that would be hidden by him and not found until the time of someone named Karma Lingpa. And in fact, uh, not actually all of them supposedly, uh, well, okay, there's a couple interpretations that uh, Karma Lingpa and three uh, of his um, uh, students or his disciples would discover new treaties. Uh, you could also maybe infer that as uh, the degenerate age is uh, dawn, new treatises might be found. I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but that's what it's referring to here is that uh, these writings were written for uh, a time when people needed this sort of uh, teaching, right? Because as I said, uh, we're looking at Tantric Buddhism in Tibet. Uh, this probably 600 AD, 700 AD, maybe later, possibly earlier. So a couple hundred years after Mahayana, um, the greater vehicle of Buddhism, uh, which stressed an individual uh, responsibility uh, for liberation and then eventually got into the esoteric stuff with uh, emptiness, shunyata, uh, the chittamatrans, the mind-only school, yogacara, madhyamika, the middle way, uh, logisticians, and uh, the university in Nalanda, I mean, it's kind of a chicken or egg again, uh, was it Ashoka's endorsement of Buddhism or was it just Buddhism developing uh, over time? I find it actually interesting because you can look at another example of the whitewash of history when they talk about um, uh, Pyro uh, and his 
his philosophy out of Greek. They, uh, he went into India with <clears throat> um, Hannibal or Alexander. I can't remember. Uh, don't, don't quote me on that. But he went into India in a martial expedition and he came back, developed this theory. Um, and supposedly it was uh, theory influenced by early Theravadan Buddhism. But this uh, middle way of Buddhism was actually influenced by Pyro. So this one gentleman had a philosophy uh, that his book was translated by the Indians and brought, uh, brought into the subcontinent, even though they have a history of uh, sharing philosophy and, and, and developing, um, you know, mutually and learning from each other. Uh, even in spite of that, uh, they still say that Pyro's uh, theories are what influenced this uh, middle way, this uh, Yogacara, this, uh, you know, even into the Stoic sort of idea that um, self uh, is not just the, the reason for our suffering, but also um, the source of that liberation. So, once again, just reading the Bardolf the Duel because it relates to absolutely pretty much uh, every philosophy. Um, uh, I mean, if you think, maybe not the awareness, right? Because what are you being aware of? What are you being aware of is that selflessness is what matters. Because that's what I boil down all thought, be it religion, philosophy, prescription, pretty much any uh, thought, human uh, thought, seems to boil down to whether... We make the better choice to be selfless. Now, not at our own expense. We talked about this earlier, right? We want the uh, golden mean, the central path, right? Not insufficiency and not excess. So you want something, uh, a choice to be selfless, uh, to benefit as many as possible, but not uh, at your expense. So, the awareness is of... Uh, the influence the ego has, that self has, as well as um, keeping it in check because uh, it is the tool with which we use to uh, see that uh, intrinsic awareness. It is the tool we use to differentiate between uh, what is born of the mind and what is intrinsic or natural. Um, so, yeah. I just love how it uh, it all tends to uh, to relate, right? As the as the Yoga Sutra loves to say, the coalescence, the integration of the teaching. So once again, it's not a system of thought; it's just a human truth. So, ta la la. <laughs>